0: Was talking to one of my girls the other day, and the, uh, the the topic of Christmas came up, and she she was expressing her excitement about it. So uh, I was naturally curious. Like, so okay, well, what is it that you're most looking forward to about Christmas? What what is it that's getting you so excited right now? And she quickly responded without well, any hesitation, and, and this was surprising to me. But she quickly she quickly responded because I'll be out of school. Now, remind you, uh, my, my kids are homeschooled, so there is no technical out of school. So I was a little bit surprised by that. I was like, you, you heard that from one of your other friends. You love school. It's fun. Uh, no, she, she said she, she's excited to be out of school specifically so she can sleep in and so that mom will make amazing breakfast every morning. Now, my, my wife does make amazing breakfast, but I think she might be a little overly optimistic about the every morning part. Um, and, and then with another daughter, it came up. It came up just earlier this week, uh, unprovoked. She mentioned one of her favorite things about the Christmas season is decorating the tree. Decorating the tree. I, I didn't. I wouldn't have guessed that. Honestly, that's one of my least favorite parts of the whole thing. But I mean, whatever. She she gets excited about that, and so that's exciting to hear that my child is enjoying that element of our tradition, that element of uh, of what we do. And it's true, though, right? For most of us, there are things that we look forward to as we enter into this uh, Christmas tie to this Advent season, preparing our hearts for Christmas. For most of us, there are things that we're looking forward to in hope. There's excitement. There's excitement about the season, whether it's the food or the movies or the music or the or the time with family or the decorations or whatever it is. There are things that stir our hearts and that excite us. Now, over the past couple of weeks, as we've worked our way through the book of Ruth, we saw in chapter one that, that Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, they've lost their husbands. They've become destitute. And as Naomi describes it at the end of chapter one, I am empty. That's how chapter one closes on, on, on a dour, grim note of Emptiness. Chapter two, however, opens up, opens up with a with a glimmer of hope in our story. In chapter two, we saw God's providence and his sovereign hand providing for Ruth and Naomi. Right? They're led by God to the field of Boaz, and where, where Ruth is gleaning. And Boaz provides generously beyond beyond all expectations for them. In Boaz's goodness, he's graciously provided for Ruth and Naomi. And he invites he invites Ruth to continue to glean in his field, right? They have found provision. So that when we get to today's message, Ruth and Naomi, they're surviving, but they're looking for something more than just survival. They have a hope that is larger than just food. So this morning, we'll look at what that hope is that Naomi and Ruth continue to cling to. What is this hope? What is this thing that they're desiring? What is this thing that they're expecting? Um, uh, this morning, and I, I think, I think that largely this is a hope that all of us will be able to identify with, that all of us hold to some degree. This morning, we're going to kind of generally break our passage up into three parts. We'll begin by looking at Naomi's plan. Then we'll look at Ruth's demand. And then finally, we'll look at Boaz, the man. I like that. I came up with that. <laughs> all right, let's pray. Father, again, we just thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you continue to speak to us, Father. We thank you that you have a message for us this morning that we are meant to hear from Ruth chapter 3. Father, I pray that you would proclaim that message powerfully and loudly to our hearts. Father, we confess that we need to hear this, that we need to see the beauty of your son this morning. Please work powerfully in our hearts. Draw us to yourself to your son and by your spirit. Amen. Let's begin by reading verses 1 through 5 of Ruth 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. She replied, All that you say, I will do. Our account this morning then opens some months after Ruth's continued gleaning. Naomi Naomi has a plan for Ruth. Ruth is to wash and to anoint herself with oil. She's to put on a cloak. Notice here, if you have an NIV, it probably says something like best clothes. I think the ESV, which is what we read out of, gets a little bit closer to the heart of a very difficult Hebrew word. I think it's closer to cloak. And then Ruth is to head for the threshing floor. Once there, she's to wait until Boaz uh, has eaten and he's drank and gone to sleep. And then she's supposed to uncover his feet, lie down. And wait for a response. Now, this passage makes complete sense to everyone, right? This is describing a typical day in your household. Husbands, when you woke up this morning, did you have your wife cuddling at your feet? Is that, is that generally how it works? I mean, in my house for sure, but no. There's, there's a lot of wives out there making disgusted faces right now about the thought of their husband's feet. This passage has a slew of difficulties. It unfolds a plan that's steeped in ancient cultural trappings with a lot of missing information about the details and about the motivations. Consequently, it leaves most of us scratching our heads. What is this actually saying? Well, there's two major interpretations for this passage. The first interpretation is that Naomi is encouraging Ruth here to seduce Boaz. Dressing up, sneaking out to him in the middle of the night to the threshing floor, uncovering him to lie with him, all point in the direction of some kind of a scandalous rendezvous. The threshing floor is an interesting detail. The threshing was the process of separating, of separating the harvested barley from its husk and from its chaff. Once it was separated, it was then collected at the threshing room floor, which was a kind of a semi-public setting, and then it would be set aside and it would be guarded by the owner until morning, because that was a typical place where a thief could break in and steal from your harvest. Right? So, uh, aside from just the work though, the threshing floor then became an ideal place for wealthy landowners to meet with prostitutes. So it was also, it also ended up becoming a bit of a scandalous type place again this only makes this plan seem that much more suspect even the expression uncovering his feet could be interpreted scandalously feet was occasionally used as a euphemism in the ancient world i'll let you guess what it's a euphemism for now there's a lot to be said for this interpretation granted the whole scenario seems suspicious Let's be honest, no one is writing a a Christian dating book based on Ruth chapter 3. That doesn't happen. That's not a thing, right? No moms or dads are sending their daughters who they want married off over to a boy's house in the middle of the night. This definitely comes off as one commentator described it as the Machiavellian scheme of a matchmaking mother-in-law. But there's another interpretation, and I I think it gets closer to the heart of the matter. It includes some of the details that we see in the next scene. So let's continue on and see how the story unfolds by looking at Ruth's demand. This comes out of verses 6 to 9. I'll read them. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, his heart was merry. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet and she said, who? And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. Ruth then follows Naomi's instructions. She changes, she anoints herself, she heads to the threshing floor and waits for the right timing. Once Boaz is asleep, she goes and she uncovers his feet and lays next to him, waiting. Then Boaz wakes up. But this is where Ruth goes off script. This isn't what Naomi prescribed. Instead of waiting for Boaz's instructions, she seizes the moment and she makes the demand that we find in verse 9. Spread your wings over your servant. Now, this is an odd expression for us today. But in the ancient world, this would have been readily recognizable. That word for wings can also be translated as garment. Um, and in fact, we see a very similar, almost the exact same expression occur in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8. Where it says, When I passed by, this is God speaking, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment, could also be translated the corner of the, the um corner of my wing, spread my wing over you. Um I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you. What kind of covenant is God entering into here with his people? I made my uh entered into covenant with you, declares the Lord God, because um and you became mine. This is a marriage covenant that's being made here. God is speaking to his people, describing a marriage covenant, using the exact same expressions that we find here. So Boaz has shockingly been awoken in the middle of the night to cold feet, right? He's been shockingly awoken, and not just cold feet, but now also a marriage proposal. Not even a marriage proposal, but a marriage demand, right? If anyone could ever say someone had cold feet, it's definitely Boaz. Funny enough, this proposal also harkens back to what we've already seen in this book. In chapter 2, verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12 reads, the Lord repay you. This is a blessing that Boaz is making over Ruth. All right. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Very similar expression uttered by Boaz himself, talking about her protection and her and uh, protection under God, under Yahweh. In a sense, then, Ruth is challenging Boaz to go on and to fulfill his own blessing that he uttered over her. Right? This gives, uh, this gives the expression, be careful what you pray for, a deeper sense. This marriage proposal also helps to explain Naomi's plan in contrast to the previous interpretation that we looked at. The previous interpretation of of seduction, we have a different interpretation. First, Naomi's motivation, even back in verse 1, is marriage for Ruth. It's not a one-night stand that she's looking for. Second, she has Ruth change clothes and anoint herself. Well, in Second Samuel 12.20, these very similar actions are taken by King David after, after the death of his child during the period of mourning. At the end of his mourning, he comes, he changes clothes, washes himself, anoints himself, all of this. This probably isn't Ruth dressing to impress. It's more likely her outward signaling that her mourning period for her husband is over and potentially symbolic of being ready To take that next step in marriage. Third, and this all takes place after months of regular interactions between her and Boaz, right? She has continued to glean in his field over the past few months. There's likely been a developing relationship here. And Naomi is is encouraging Ruth, okay, now it's time. Take that next step. And fourth, this is further corroborated by the continued presentation of Ruth as being a woman of integrity and virtue. Boaz's description of Ruth in verse 11 continues to praise her for being upright, right? That would be totally contradicted if this was a seduction of some sort taking place. This uncovering of Boaz's feet is a symbolic action. Ruth wants him to respond by covering her with his wing, by, by his garment. She wants to be married. This is a marriage proposal. Just to make sure her intentions aren't missed, she gives her own explanation in verse nine, for you are a redeemer. Now, redeemer means that Boaz is a close kinsman, a close relative who can maintain the stability of the family in the wake of Malone in uh, Ruth's husband's death by taking possession of the family pr- property and by continuing the family line. Ruth is appealing to him to fulfill, to fulfill his role, his obligation through marriage to her intentions intentions can always be a tricky thing to know i was i was in the weight room previously this week putting putting weight on a bench press getting ready and uh th- there was a woman in the in the weight room with me one who i hadn't spoken to before and uh she 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 approached me and she asked me if i was going to need any more weight on the bench press and uh, i didn't really think through it at all I was like no i'm good this is all i need uh, and then I kind of paused and hesitated. I was like, huh, I could be interpreted a ton of different ways, right? Like, I mean, she, she could be mocking me right now. Like, is that, is that all the way that you're going to put? It? So, uh, so, so, so jokingly and teasingly, I responded, oh, are, are, are you just giving me a hard time? Is this not enough weight on the bench press currently? And she looked at me with a straight face and she said, yeah, no. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I went home and I cried. No, she, she, she didn't say that. She did. She, she did joke back and forth with me, but, um, intentions, intentions can be a difficult thing to discern. Um, and so we need to be careful when we're looking at a situation like this to really look at everything that goes into it. What we do know is that this was a radical move on Naomi's part. Even assuming the best of intentions for Naomi and Ruth, this plan is filled with difficulties, right? It's riddled with difficulties. First, the physical danger of Ruth being out at night, especially at a threshing room floor, Given this period in Israel's history, the book of Judges records horrific acts being done to women during the same time period. Second, the potential for others to have witnessed and misinterpreted Ruth's actions as being possibly prostitution, right? That that, that certainly would have been an interpretation that most people would have jumped to. Third, the potential for Boaz. To misinterpret her actions, right? Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night and finds her at his feet in his bed. How is he supposed to interpret it, right? Or number four, even the potential for Boaz to have taken advantage of the situation and Ruth. Again, this culture in general did not treat women well. They were treated like commodities. The whole scenario is a significant gamble with Ruth's well-being and with her reputation. Even assuming even assuming the best of Naomi's intentions, assuming that they are good, does not necessitate us to understand this to be a wise course of action. And just because it's described as being done by a biblical figure doesn't mean it's prescriptive for how we should act today. Just because a biblical figure does something doesn't mean that we need to emulate it, right? I can think of plenty of occasions in the Old Testament where Old Testament figures were doing things that we should certainly not do. But despite how hazardous these actions might have been, God's providence still shines through in the situation. God has a good plan for Ruth and Naomi. Even when our plans might be might be foolish or maybe even potentially sinful, God's plan is still good and he will see it through. Right? Proverbs 16:9. The man the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. The Lord is is involved in every detail. Isaiah 46.10, declaring declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient of times, the things not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes. God's plan can't be deterred, even when we make foolish decisions. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of his will. uh, According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will all things. He does it all. He works it all out according to the purpose of his will, right? God has a plan. Sometimes we get so gripped by a fear that we're going to mess up his plan that we miss we miss this fundamental truth i am constantly amazed in pastoral counseling and or even just even just the friends that i've known through the years as i hear um especially married ones as i hear the uh, how they ended up meet uh, how they ended up meeting their spouse and what the dating process looked like and everything and i listen to these stories and i'm always like wow you made a lot of really dumb decisions that's amazing and here they are happily married the all these years later it's like man praise god praise god right God uses us even when we don't make the best decisions, even when we're not always at our best. And I think if we're honest, we never make all the right decisions, right? And we never really are at our best. But God has a plan and God is good. But the story doesn't end there. How does Boaz respond? Looking at Boaz the man, I'll read verses 10 through 18. Then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before before one could recognize another. Um, And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Everything was against Ruth, right? Everything was against her. She was a foreigner demanding marriage from an Israelite. She was a Moabitess at that. Um, the, the book of Ruth has already referred to Ruth five times. And mind you, this is a short book. She, The book of Ruth has already referred to her five times as being a woman of, Moab, of Moabite. Um, this was a profound thing in the ancient world. The people of His, Israel hated the Moabites. They hated them. They were a cursed people. Deuteronomy 23.3 states that they were not even allowed to enter the assembly of God's people because of their corruption. So the Moabites were cast off. There was a huge cultural divide between them. Second, in addition, she was a woman demanding marriage from a man. And that just didn't happen in that culture, right? There was a culture where a woman would never approach a man in that way. It It was socially unacceptable. Number three, she was also destitute, demanding marriage from a wealthy man in a different social stratum. And number four, on top of it all, she was a younger woman demanding marriage of an older man. So here was a young woman in a questionable situation breaking all the social norms and accepted views of decency, right? It would be similar to uh, to a pastor being up here in, Minnesota, in a church in Minnesota on a Sunday morning talking about how great the Packers were. Breaks all views of decency, right? <laughs> be a horrendous thing, should be rightly flogged for it. Instead... Instead, Boaz continues to be a worthy man that he has been described as back in chapter 2. He shows in a number of ways. First, he doesn't take advantage of her in this vulnerable position. Second, when Naomi had said that Ruth should do what Boaz tells her to do, he actually ends up reversing the roles. Do you see that? He actually ends up reversing the roles. And in verse 11 says that he'll do what she wants him to do. Third, instead of the expected curses over this compromising position he's been thrust into, Boaz responds with immediate blessings over her. Fourth, he praises her as a worthy woman instead of being an immoral Moabitess. That expression, worthy woman, is one of the highest praises a woman could receive in the ancient world. The only other time a woman received that sort of praise was in Proverbs 31, the hypothetical Proverbs 31 woman. Fifth, instead of being, instead of being repulsed, instead of being repulsed by Ruth's proposal, Boaz accepts responsibility. He accepts the responsibility to take care of her. Even when he reveals that there's someone else who's actually closer, someone else who would be more likely to be her husband, he is still willing to take responsibility to make sure there's a resolution. Sixth, he puts himself out to protect her and her reputation by having her wait until, until early morning to leave. Mind you, this could ruin his reputation. And finally, along with all of that, he sends her home with an incredible gift of six measures of barley. Someone might respond, well, Boaz is required to do all of this, right? He's a redeemer. However, the laws of ancient Israel only required a brother to marry his brother's widow. Boaz's application of the law went actually beyond the direct command and rather captured the spirit of the law. Boaz is extending incredible grace here to Ruth and taking this responsibility on himself. Just as Ruth was a worthy woman, Boaz has shown himself to be her counterpart as a worthy man. Back to our original question then. What was Naomi's hope through this story? What was Naomi's hope? It'd be easy for us to answer simply that she wanted a husband for Ruth, but that doesn't really get at the heart of it. Back in three one, it was noted that Naomi's motivation for Ruth was that she would find rest, that she would find rest. This is the same thing she had desired for Ruth even back in chapter 1, where she told Ruth and Orpah to go to find rest. Now, her expectation is that that rest that they were longing for would ultimately come through a husband and through a good marriage. The real desire, though, is rest. And that's the undergirding thing that's driving this chapter, putting Boaz in the crosshairs. Now, rest isn't just a theme in in Ruth. Rest is a major theme throughout the whole Bible, beginning even in creation account with the unfolding of the creative works that end on the seventh day in rest. Not because God needed rest. God is, God is all-powerful and inexhaustible. He doesn't need rest. He never has more or less energy. He is energy. He is constant. But rather, God rested for us to show us a truth about ourselves and about our future. God prescribed rest for the Israelites in the law. They were supposed to, on the seventh day, take a Sabbath rest. God described the promised land that they were entering into as the land of rest, where they would experience security from all of their enemies. There was a future expectation of rest that we see in Isaiah chapter 11, where, where the, uh, the lamb will lay down with the wolf, where the child will play, where the babe will play with a cobra, right? The, the, there will come a day when there will, be no more, there will be no more danger, where there will be a peace, a shalom that will cover them. And this is described as a rest. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews describes us as having to strive to enter the rest, right? We are called to strive to enter this future rest, a rest that we both get to experience now to some degree, but a rest that will have full completion in the future. And this desire is knit into every human soul. Every person strives and longs for rest. We just differ in how we identify it and how we go about seeking it some people will turn to weekends and holidays right so that it, so that it's a hope of a break from work or school maybe a chance to sleep in in the mornings a chance to do what you want some look to their hobbies if i if i can just get outside and do my thing if i could just have something to work on if i can just go take part in this while others look for a way to just mentally check out now that's not to say that there's anything wrong with any of these That's not to say there's anything inherently wrong with being able to enjoy these good gifts. Rather, the problem is when these good gifts take the place of our real hope for rest. We were made for something so much greater. Naomi located Ruth's rest and well-being in a redeemer. But it was a human redeemer. Most of us who are married and at least past the first year of marriage will quickly recognize that rest, rest will only take you so far in marriage, right? Marriage can only do so much. But Boaz, Boaz spoke better than he knew when he told Ruth, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. There is a redeemer nearer than Boaz. There is a rest that stands closer to us, right? Right? Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, or verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the rest that our souls were made for. He is the rest that we were built to enjoy. Augustine, St. Augustine, he put it this way. Thou has made us for thyself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. No matter how hard we search, no matter where we set our eyes, no matter how urgent or focused or diligent, no matter what image you're craving or what, su- what success you long for or what comfort or security you're clinging to, you will never find our rest in anything that this world has to offer. Christ alone is the one who can fill our hope for rest. Christ alone is the one who can calm our souls. Christ alone is the one who can fill our cup. Christ alone is the one who can mend our brokenness. Christ alone can do it. Just as Ruth goes to Boaz with nothing to offer but offense, we go to our Redeemer with nothing but offense. And he stoops low in his amazing grace and he whispers rest. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Father, I confess that my heart longs for rest. Lord, God, I pray that you would continue, Father, to exalt your Son in each of our hearts, and Lord, that our eyes would be turned towards him. Father, that we would not be quickly given in to the um, to the many distractions, the many false rests that this world has to offer, but Lord, that we would be enthralled with the true rest. God, that we would go to him, Father, and that we would find comfort and rest and peace. God, you are good. We pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Amen. This morning, we close with our benediction coming from Jude, verses 24 to 25. Please stand. We'll have, um, we'll have some elders down at the front for anyone seeking prayer after the service. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. Have a good Sunday and enjoy rest.